You're listening to the William Allen Smith Podcast, where I talk about books, thoughts, and roads, the journeys of life. Demand for my opinions is at an all-time low, and for good reason. So thank you for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I appreciate you joining me again. Today, I'm going to be uh, attempting to conclude the first meditation of David Bentley Hart's great book, That All Shall Be Saved. Let me just dive back in with a little bit of review. This first meditation is about creatio ex nihilo. It's an argument against eternal conscious torment, uh, an eternal lake of fire, uh, an eternal hell, based on the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Now, just to review these concepts a little bit so that we can continue with parts uh, three and four of this meditation and conclude it. Creation ex, ex nihilo is the, is the teaching that when God created, he did so freely, that there was no constraint of necessity and there was no constraint of ignorance, that God had no internal or external force compelling him to create it. He didn't have to create in any way. And also that he wasn't constrained by ignorance, that in acting to create, there's nothing that will ultimately conclude from that that's outside of the scope of what God intended. So that's creation ex nihilo. It's founded on this idea that God was free in his act of creation. And really, the ultimate argument here is, therefore, he is responsible for what results from that morally. That's where this whole thing is going. And really, the way his argument unfolds is that because he was free in the act of creation, that in the end, when this, when this plane lands, when, when he gets to the end results and creation is fully created, then his purpose will ultimately be re- revealed. How things turn out, by definition, must have been his intention because he's not going to be caught off guard in the, in the act of creation, in the free act of creation. He wasn't constrained by ignorance. And so uh, however things turn out, He knew that's how things would turn out when he created, and therefore that will reveal his purpose. In that moment, not only will his purpose in creation be revealed, but his character as a creator will be fully revealed. And so the idea that creation reveals the glory of God, it's a very biblical thought, that's really what we mean is that in the act of creation, it's a self-revelation. God is saying, Here's who I am. And at the end of the story, we're going to find out who he is. And all of that is rooted in the idea of creation ex nihilo. That's basically part one. In part two, he, he takes a, a few different doctrines and says, listen, if we hold these doctrines together and then hang on to this idea of eternal conscious torment, it makes God a monster. Here are those doctrines. The first one is the one we just talked about, creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. The second doctrine is original sin. That's the doctrine that uh, humans, upon conception, uh, upon birth, are imputed with guilt. They are damned from the moment of birth. That's original sin. It's not based on anything they've done or didn't do. It's just their state upon the moment of their existence, original sin. And then the third doctrine is the doctrine of election. That's the idea that God has sovereignly, as an exercise of his power, chosen a few from among the damned, the elect, and he's chosen to save them, to provide salvation for them. And when you hold to those three beliefs, and you believe that the end result of things is that 
vast majority of humans are going to spend eternity burning in the lake of fire, it logically, rationally makes God a monster. And what he does in this section is he just goes through and shows how Christians, Christian leaders throughout church history have actually embraced this. The the implications of these beliefs have historically led to the belief that hell will be populated by infants. The idea here is that you have babies born who die in infancy. They weren't elect. They were never baptized. They were never saved. And so they're clearly part of the damned because of original sin, because of election. They're excluded from that. They're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And he just goes and shows all these Christian leaders who throughout history have affirmed that, that hell will be copiously populated by infants no more than a cubit long. I think uh, Calvin says that as as he quotes in the book. And also, the implications of these beliefs have historically led to the belief that the elect will, in heaven, rejoice at the torment of the damned. Over and over again, this is affirmed in the final state of things that the elect, which is never them, it's always us, right? So we will be in heaven, and we will be very aware of the torment of the damned. And in our awareness of the torment of the damned, we're going to be rejoicing in that, proclaiming the goodness of it, the the, the mercy of it, the justice of it. And what that does is it, it doesn't just make God a monster, it makes us monsters. The second thing it does is, is it really undermines our ability to speak of God at all. Because if a finite human being whose ability, whose freedom to make choices is very much constrained by both necessity and ignorance, Someone who, from the very beginning, is damned, has a a nature of sin, is born as a slave of sin, they can't possibly commit a transgression freely that would justly merit eternal torment. And so if that's going to be the final state of things, it makes God a monster. But if in heaven we're going to call that good— it makes us monsters. But if in the here and now, we're going to proclaim the goodness, the justice, the mercy of God, while believing that that is the place that this story is headed, then the idea of what is goodness actually begins to evaporate. The idea of what is justice begins to evaporate. If I have to call what is unjust, just, then the word justice loses all meaning. And in this state of affairs, we actually lose our ability to speak intelligibly about God at all. Finally, in part two, he makes this point. Listen, if in the final state of things in heaven, we're rejoicing at the destruction of the damned, that, that's bad enough. But let's just say that we become unaware, that we're oblivious to it. That's really not all that much better because here's the reality. None of us are persons individually. Our personhood, as David Bentley Hart says it so well, is our whole history of associations, loves, memories, attachments, and affinities. None of us are who we are individually. We are who we are as part of a community, as part of a humanity. And so if our loved ones are lost forever, then our personhood is diminished by that. And so the the reality is that God can't save anyone unless he saves everyone. If the majority of humans or even a, a significant portion of humans are damned forever, then the very humanity of the elect who are saved is diminished by that reality. So logically, the idea of eternal conscious torment, when we think it through from the starting place of creatio ex nihilo, 
it all begins to collapse to something that it's a doctrine that cannot be sustained. So that's a review of basically the past two uh, sessions. And let's just dive into a little bit of new stuff here to conclude this meditation. In part three, David Bentley Hart brings up a common objection, a common rebuttal to his argument. And it's, it's basically this, that the reason people are going to burn in hell forever is because of how much God values the freedom of creatures. I'm reminded of a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. It's basically something like this, that in the end, there will only be two categories of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. And and the idea here is that God has such respect for human freedom that he's going to let people choose to live in torment uh, apart from him for all eternity, just because he wouldn't wouldn't want to violate their freedom. And the point David Bentley Hart makes, I think so well, is that that argument falls apart because it's based upon a very incoherent and unsustainable model of freedom. First of all, no human being is that free. We've already talked about this. Humans aren't free the way God was free. God is the one who created out of nothing. He was the one who was unconstrained by either necessity or ignorance. Humans are completely constrained by both necessity and ignorance. Any any freedom that we have to choose one thing from the other is a freedom that exists within a bubble of both necessity and ignorance. We're we're very conditioned creatures. We're conditioned by our culture. We're conditioned by our experiences. There's a set of assumptions and biases that affect every decision that we made. Uh, Yes, I made a decision at five years old to ask Jesus into my heart, but had I been born in a different culture in a different time, I I wouldn't have been free to make that same decision. It wasn't this libertarian freedom that was unconstrained. It was a very conditioned freedom, and that's true for every human. None of our, our freedom is very finite. The only coherent model of freedom that really works is understanding that when a rational creature understands the truth, then and only then are they free to choose it. We're not making a decision here between truth and falseness in some vacuum where there's no bias or there's no conditioning. We're not just choosing between truth and falsehood. We can only choose the truth if we know the truth. We're not free to choose it if we don't fully understand it. To the degree that we're ignorant, we are constrained. We're not free. That's the idea. And and really, there's several verses in the Bible that convey this very point, and David Bentley Hart points them out so well. One is John 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So if you're not free, it's because you don't fully know the truth. Because we are constrained by ignorance, to take a human being who chooses to reject God, who chooses to reject the gospel, who chooses to reject Jesus. We can't say that that was a free choice because if they really knew the truth, then they would be free. But if they really knew the truth, they would then be free to choose the truth. They have rejected it because they didn't know it. They can't be held as accountable because of the lack of freedom. And the lack of freedom is a direct result of the lack of truth. Jesus conveys the same idea from the cross in Luke 23, 34, when he says, 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We've got a part in them. Let's not hold this transgression against them. On what basis? On the basis that they're ignorant. They do not know what they were doing. Now, they, they may have had some sense that Jesus was innocent, that this was unjust, that they were clearly experts when it came to executing someone in this torturous way. They weren't completely without wisdom. They weren't completely without information. What's being said here is that their wisdom and their and therefore their freedom is limited and therefore to hold them eternally accountable for their action would be unjust. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, if they really knew, if they had the truth, they wouldn't do it. If they had the truth, they wouldn't make this choice. If they really understood the truth, they would choose differently. They are finite in their freedom and therefore finite in how they can be held accountable. That's the, the basis of this argument from the cross. He, he also points out in John eight thirty four, everyone committing a sin is a slave to sin. Well, that's the opposite of how I've tended to think. I, I think, well, people sin because they're free to sin, that they freely choose sin. No, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. David Bentley Hart points out, and a slave, needless to say, is not free. So you can't say, well, they're going to burn in hell forever because of their sins that they freely chose. No, no. They're going to burn in hell forever because of the sins that they committed because they were a slave to sin. And why? Because they weren't free to choose otherwise. And why weren't they free to choose otherwise? Because they didn't know the truth. Because if they knew the truth, the truth would set them free and they would have chosen differently. And so you've got to have a coherent model of freedom. It, it doesn't make sense to assume that there's going to come a point where any human individual truly sees God for who he is, truly sees Jesus for who he is, recognizes the goodness, the truth, the justice, the mercy of God, and says, I'd rather be tormented forever. No one who knows the truth is going to choose that. That's why one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because this God who emptied himself, this God who lowered himself, this God who became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, is now exalted and is the king of heaven and earth, and every human being is at one point going to stand before that God and is going to know him and know the truth. And what's the response going to be? It's not going to be to reject him. It's going to be to bow the knee. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm getting away from David Bentley Hart's argument here, but you go back to Romans 10, 9 and 10, that's actually almost formulaically the way someone responds with faith resulting in salvation. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. And that's going to happen, according to Philippians 2, to everyone, everyone. The appeal to creaturely freedom and God's value for creaturely freedom falls short in being able to justify holding to the idea of eternal conscious torment. David Bentley Hart's next point is to clarify that what we're talking about here in holding to the idea of eternal conscious torment, what he refers to as the infernalist view, to hold to that is to assign, to attribute moral evil 
to God. So let's just talk about evil for a minute. There's basically two categories of evil. There's natural evil and moral evil. In both cases, there's harm. There's, there's a victim. There's something unjust that's taking place that victimizes someone. That's what makes it evil. And with natural evil, what we recognize is that there wasn't a rational intention behind it. If a tsunami comes in and wipes out a coastal village somewhere around the Pacific, and hundreds or thousands of people are swept out and die, we would say that is an evil. But we wouldn't call it a moral evil because there was no rational intention behind it. It was caused by just the reality of living in a broken world. Evil, yes, because innocent people died and their lives were snuffed out early and that's awful and they're victims, but not a moral evil. The thing that makes something a moral evil is when there's a rational intention behind it. When some being with rational capability chose to act in a way that would produce that end. By believing in creatio ex nihilo, holding to the idea that God freely created, and he did so without any constraint of ignorance, and that all that unfolds from that was entailed in the act itself, by holding to that doctrine and then winding up with eternal conscious torment, what you have is a God who freely created creatures that he intended to torture forever in the lake of fire who could not possibly have deserved it. That is the definition of moral evil. Another thought that he brings up, say you're part of the elect and you're going to spend eternity saved, not in hell. And if God, in freely choosing to create, did so so that you could be with him forever, what was the price he was willing to pay for that? And if eternal conscious torment is real and true and is where this story is headed, then the eternal suffering of the damned is the price God was willing to pay to save you. What does that make them? That makes them the price for your salvation. That makes them the sacrifice. That makes them the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a third view. You know, we've got eternal conscious torment, and then we've got basically a Christian universalism, the idea that all will be saved, and that's what David Bentley Hart's arguing for. There's actually a third position. It's called conditional immortality or annihilationism. It's this belief that, yes, we cannot believe that God is going to torment people forever. That's not just. But we also believe that God is going to respect people's freedom. So those who have freely rejected him, they're not going to be tormented forever, but they will be annihilated. They will cease to exist. They're going to, they're going to be thrown into the fire, but the fire is going to burn them up so that they no longer exist. That's the annihilationist view. What David Bentley Hart points out so well is that the annihilationist view reduces the horror of the problem, but it doesn't solve the, the logic of the problem. Because even if instead of being tormented forever, they are just snuffed out, there is still the eternal loss of creatures made in the image of God. And that was the price that God was willing to pay for your salvation. And so they still become the sacrifice, and it's still an eternal sacrifice because it's not, it's not an eternal torment, but it's an eternal loss. And so choosing annihilationism doesn't solve that problem. If eternal conscious torment is true or annihilationism is true, 
and your elect, then you will spend eternity with God in the death, the annihilation, the torment, the loss of all the damned will be the price that God was willing to pay for you. They will be the sacrifice that secured your salvation. Now, that's basically part three of the first meditation. Part four just concludes it. It ties it up with a bow. All I want to do is read a couple of quotes here, and then we'll, we'll be done for the day. These are great, so stick with it and listen to these. First of all, David Bentley Hart says this, We are presented by what has become the majority tradition, with three fundamental claims, any two of which might be true simultaneously, but never all three. Now, here they are. One, that God freely created all things out of nothingness. Two, that God is the good itself. Three, that it is certain or at least possible that some rational creatures will endure eternal loss of God. Three ideas. Creation ex nihilo, God created everything out of nothingness. God is good, that's number two, and that some of humanity will suffer eternal loss. You can believe two of those things, any two, but if you try to believe all three, you're believing something that's contradictory, that's an antithesis. You cannot, you can hold that God is good, but deny creation ex nihilo and think, well, things just didn't, aren't going to turn out the way he intended and still affirm eternal conscious torment. But if you try to believe that God is good and believe in eternal conscious torment, you will wind up logically denying creation ex nihilo, that there was some other thing that forced creation, or that God was ignorant in the act of creation and didn't realize things would turn out that way. If you really want to hang on to what the Bible presents as truth, which is clearly that God is good and that God is all-knowing, Uh, that he is all powerful. If you want to hang on to creation ex nihilo and you want to hang on to the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, never mind all the scriptures like God was in Christ reconciling the whole cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. If you want to hang on to what the Bible teaches is true, you've got to deny one of those three things. And it seems that the most obvious one to deny is the idea that God is going to take a finite human being who made choices that were constrained by both necessity and ignorance. Let's just deny that God is going to unjustly torment them forever. You can hang on to two. You can't hang on to three. One final quote. The God of eternal retribution and pure sovereignty proclaimed by so much of Christian tradition, is not, and cannot possibly be, the God of self-outpouring love revealed in Christ. If God is the good creator of all, he must also be the savior of all, without fail, who brings to himself all he has made, including all rational wills, and only thus returns to himself in all that goes forth from him. If he is not the savior of all, the kingdom is only a dream and creation something considerably worse than a nightmare. But, again, it is not so. According to scripture, God saw that what he created was good. If so, then all creatures must, in the ages, see it as well. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter at W. Allen Smith and on Instagram at W underscore Allen Smith. 
If you like what I'm doing, find it helpful, tell someone else about it. That kind of organic growth is the only kind I'm interested in. If you have a comment or question, you can email me at info at Thank you so much. Until next time.